as we come to Joshua chapter 22, we're not only nearing the end of Joshua's book, but we're also nearing the end of Joshua's life. As a matter of fact, in the the first verse of the next chapter, Joshua says this of himself, I am old and stricken in age. Now, before anybody here can say, yeah, I relate to that, he was 110. Okay? It's 110. So I'm old and stricken in age. And so, as Joshua prepares to transition, not only from leadership, but literally from life, he uses what time he has left to set some things in order. And he began by dismissing the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh. But before he dismisses them, he commends them. Now let me stop there and just say this this morning. Let me give you a heads up this morning. It's going to take a little mental energy to stay, to stay connected this morning, okay? We're going to get somewhere, I promise you. And it'll get very practical and very down to earth and very you can leave here and put it to practice like now. But in order to get there, we're going to have to do some work in the text, okay? So there's going to be a lot of scripture. If you don't have your Bible, that's fine. It'll be on the screen for you to follow along this morning. If you can turn there, I would encourage you to do that. But I just want to give you a heads up. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to work a little bit mentally to stay with me this morning. So if you're ready to do that, say, let's go. All right, here we go. Beginning in Joshua chapter 22 and verse 1, it says this. Then came near the heads of the fathers, excuse me, that's chapter 21. We want chapter 22. It's really going to take some mental energy to stay with me if I'm in chapter 21. <laughs> chapter 22. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And he said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren, as he promised them. Therefore now return ye, and get you unto your tents, and unto the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of Jordan. Drop down to verse 7. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan. But unto the other half thereof gave Joshua among their brethren on this side Jordan westward. And when Joshua sent them away also under their tents, then he blessed them. And he spake unto them, saying, Return with much riches unto your tents, and with very much cattle, and with silver, and with gold, and with brass, and with iron, and with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren, and the children of Reuben, and the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned. And departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the country of Gilead, 
to the land of their possession, whereof they were possessed, according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Now, here's the map that we have been looking at throughout our study. As you can see, you've got the Dead Sea at the top. You've, you, excuse me, you've got uh, the Sea of Galilee at the top. You've got the Dead Sea at the bottom. And, and you see that river, that line connecting the two. That's the Jordan River. That's the natural dividing point of Canaan. And uh, nine and a half of the tribes chose to settle in Canaan on the west side of the river. There were two and a half tribes, we've read of them already, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, who chose to take their lot on the east side of the Jordan. And as we talked about in a previous message, that proved to be an unwise decision. That proved to be an unwise choice, because as you can see, there was nothing to protect them. There was nothing to shelter them. And eventually they were overtaken by the king of, of Syria, of Assyria. Now, we've not really talked about um, how this came to be. The, the Gadites and the Reubenites and half the tribe of Manasseh. We've not really talked about how, how, how it came to be that they would settle over there. And I certainly do not want to get bogged down in this this morning because, as, as I said, I think there is some really, really good stuff uh, ahead of us this morning, and I want to get to that. But if you'll mark your place in Joshua chapter 22 and turn with me to Numbers chapter 32 for a moment, I just want you to see how this all went down. All right, so you've got all of, all of, of Israel, and they've, they've come to the Jordan River, and they're camped outside on the east side of the Jordan River. And in, in Numbers 32, we read this, verse 1, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazer, the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation. And they said, Ashtaroth and Dibon and Jazer and Nimrah and Heshbon and Eliali and Shebam and Nebo and Beon, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. And thy servants have much cattle. Wherefore said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for possession, and bring us not over Jordan. And Moses said unto the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war, and shall ye sit here? And wherefore discourage ye the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord hath given them? Thus did your fathers when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up into the valley of Eskel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of, their, of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. Now drop down to verse 16. And they came near unto him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our cattle, and cities for our little ones, 
But we ourselves will go ready, armed, before the children of Israel until we have brought them unto their place. And our little ones shall dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return unto our houses until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on yonder side, Jordan, or forward, because our inheritance is fallen to us on this side, Jordan, eastward. And Moses said unto them, verse 20, If ye will do this thing, if ye will go armed before the Lord to war, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Lord, until he hath driven out his enemies from before him, and the land be subdued before the Lord, then afterward ye shall return, and be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if ye will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build you cities for your little ones, and folds for your sheep, and do that which hath proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spake unto Moses, saying, Thy servants will do as my Lord commanded. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all our cattle shall be there in the cities of Gilead. But thy servants will pass over, every man armed for war, before the Lord to battle, as my Lord saith. And so they come, to, they come to Moses. Moses, we've got a lot of cattle. This is great grazing land. If you don't mind, we would just soon stay over here as go over there. And Moses was concerned because he was afraid that they were going to settle over there and leave the other nine and a half tribes of Israel to go in and conquer the land uh, uh, by themselves. But he said, no, 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 Moses, here's the deal. We will settle our families. We'll, we'll make sure that they're safe. And then we promise you, we will go, all of us will go with you, and we'll fight for, with you, and we'll fight for our, with our brothers, and we will help them secure the land. And then once the land is secured, we'll come back to our families. Now, as we come back to Joshua chapter 22, you still with me? As we come back to Joshua 22, Joshua commends the two and a half tribes of Israel for keeping their word. They did exactly what they had committed to do. And now he releases them to go back to their families. Because, by the way, they've been gone for seven years. They've not seen their wives, their children, any of their families, any of their relatives for seven years. And so Joshua sends them back. But before he sends them back, he gives them a charge. Look at verse 5. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, a servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them, and sent them away, and they went unto their tents. And certainly there's a lot of preaching right there. But I just want to point out one thing and we'll move on. I want you to notice where Moses started with this charge. He starts with them loving the Lord. He did not want their devotion to ever be a matter of cold conformity to a code of rules. And by the way, 
By the same token, as New Testament followers of Christ, our devotion to Him should never be a matter of cold conformity to a code of rules. God is not looking for a a rigid compliance to a set of, of do's and don'ts motivated by a sense of obligation. Our motivation for obeying the Lord and serving the Lord ought to be a deep-seated love for Him that says, I want to serve Him, not I have to serve Him. And again, there's a, obviously a lot of preaching here, but I want to get to the, to the next section, which begins in verse 10, because here, here's what happens. A conflict arises. A conflict arises. Look at verse 10. And when they came under the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. Now there's some discussion even among our ministry staff about whether this altar was built on the west side of Jordan Uh, before they crossed over or whether it was built after they crossed over on the east side of Jordan. Where it was built is irrelevant. What is relevant is that it was built. And it wasn't a little one. It was a great one. As in a great big one. And it didn't sit well with the nine and a half tribes on the west side. Look at verse 11. And the children of Israel heard say, mark that, heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and children of Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel, here it is again, heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. Okay, time out, time out. These are their brothers. These are people that they have gone to war with. They have fought together with. They are of the same nation. They are of the same army. These two and a half tribes have just spent seven years away from their families, putting their lives on the line as they fought beside them day after day after day. And now those on the west side of Jordan are ready to go to war with them based, listen to me, based on something they heard. You tracking with me? Something they heard. We'll come back to that. Verse 13, the children of Israel sent unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and of the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phidias, the son of Eleazar the priest. And with him ten princes of each chief house, a prince throughout all the tribes of Israel, and each one was, was an head of the house of their fathers among the thousands of Israel. And they came unto the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh unto the land of Gilead, and they spake unto them. Here's what they said, verse 16. What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord in that ye have builded you an altar 
that ye might rebel this day against the Lord. Is iniquity of pure too little for us, from which we are not cleansed unto this day? Although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it will be, seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. In other words, listen, guys, if, if, it's, not, if it's not what you thought it was over, over here, then come on over with us. We'll help you. We'll get you settled. But don't do what you're doing. But rebel not, he said, against the Lord, nor against rebel, uh, rebel against us in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, we, we remember Achan from chapter 7, did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man perished, not alone in his iniquity. So, the westward tribes of Israel thought this was such a grievous act that they were ready to go to war against their brothers because they were convinced that they were going to, to obey or disobey a clear command of God against offering sacrifices on any other altar. Write down Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 14. You can read about it there. God said, no, that's not supposed to happen. I will judge you if it happens. And on top of that, they knew that the disobedience of Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh would bring God's judgment on the entire nation because they've already seen it happen. It happened when they uh, committed uh, adultery and idolatry uh, in worshiping Baal Peor in Numbers chapter 25. God judged the whole nation of Israel uh, when Achan sinned in, in Joshua chapter 7. And so they've got these, these legitimate concerns. But what we're going to find out is that their assumption was totally, totally unfounded. Stay with me. Verse 21. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the household of the thousands of Israel. Now listen to this. The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day, in that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offerings or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon. Let the Lord himself require it. In other words, you know what? You're right. You're right. If we have built this altar for the purpose of of offering sacrifices somewhere else other than where God said to offer sacrifices, then yeah, you're right. We deserve to die right here, right now, on the spot. You're right. They said, but God knows. 
God knows. And hopefully you'll come to understand as well that that's not our purpose. That's not why we built this altar. Verse 24, come on now, stay with me. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, now they're going to explain why they did it. That in time to come, your children might speak unto our children, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you. Ye children of Reuben and children of Gad, ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar. Not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings. In other words, we're going to do these things where we're supposed to, that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore we say that it shall be, they should say so to us, or to our generations in time to come, that we may say again, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, they're, they're, they're saying again, nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. God forbid, verse 29, God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord. To build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, and for sacrifices. Beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before his tabernacle. So do you understand what's going on? Here, here's, here's, what, here's what just happened. At the end of the day, the end of the day, the altar was not to offer sacrifices on. It was to serve as a memorial. We're talking about in generations to come as this generation passes off the scene and another generation comes and even after them another generation comes. They were afraid that this is what's going to happen. Well, you live on the other side of Jordan. You're not one of us. You don't belong to us. You have no right to worship with us. You have no right to offer sacrifices with us. I don't know why you're, you're even trying to do that. And they, the, the two and a half tribes, didn't want that to happen. And so they built this altar as a memorial to say, no, 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 listen. Our fathers built this altar here not to burn sacrifices, not to offer offerings, but to remind us that we are of you and you are of us. And we are of the same people. And we're of the same clan. Our purpose is to worship in Shiloh. So their purpose, listen. Their purpose was the very opposite of what those on the west side of Jordan had feared. Rather than rebellion, it was intended as a mark of loyalty and unity. I love verse 30. 
And when Phineas the priest and the princes of the congregation and heads of the thousands of Israel which were with him heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spake, it pleased them. <laughs> Disaster averted. So, what can we conclude from this? Here it is. You ready? Write this down. Please write this down. Unfounded assumptions lead to untrue accusations which lead to unwarranted attacks. That's it. Unfounded assumptions lead to untrue accusations which lead to unwarranted attacks. Go back to verse 11. And the children of Israel heard say. They didn't see it. They didn't witness it. They heard it. And when they heard it, they assumed the worst. And in the end, their assumption could have not been more wrong. Now, church, look at me. You think there's a lesson for us here today? You think there's something we can take away from this today? What do you think it is? How about this? Don't make assumptions. Don't make assumptions. I submit to you that far too often, now the, we're going to get down to where we live, okay? No more scripture. I submit to you that far too often we are quick to take what we've heard and to make unfounded assumptions that lead to untrue accusations that often lead to unwarranted attacks. And I hate to admit this this morning, but this often happens in ministry. And sadly, and embarrassingly so, I can't say I've never been guilty of it. I wish I could, but that would be dishonest. Someone hears something about another pastor, or they hear something about another ministry person, or about another church, or they see something on social media, and they automatically assume it's true, and they just roll with it. And before long, Listen, I've been at this nearly 40 years. I know this is how it happens. And before long, there are all kinds of accusations being made, all kinds of attacks being launched. There are letters and blogs being written. There are podcasts being recorded. And it's all based, listen, all based on what somebody heard. How many times have we assumed the worst about a brother or sister right here in the fellowship family. Someone doesn't speak to us. Someone doesn't shake our hand. And we automatically assume they're just stuck up or they don't like us. 
or they think they're better than us. And it never dawns on us that maybe, just maybe, they are running to do something that they need to do because they forgot to do it. They've got to grab a lesson. They've got to grab a, a prop. They've got to grab this. They've got to grab that. Or maybe the pastor asked them, hey, would you run and grab me a bottle of water? Would you run and put this in the cafe? Would you do this? And they're trying to get this done. And yeah, they just scoot right by us, meaning nothing at all. But we automatically assume, well, she's stuck up. Well, you think you're better than me? You can't shake my hand. Come on. And we assume the worst. Isn't that sad? Someone's child doesn't get invited to a birthday party. Or they don't get invited to a barbecue. And they automatically assume things that just aren't true. And from there they make, make accusations that are unfair, and they launch attacks that are unwarranted. Can somebody help me here this morning? I know it's getting personal. It needs to get personal. Because this stuff happens every day. Listen, do you realize how many churches have split because of things like that? Not on anything they knew for sure, not on any facts, but they heard it. And I know if she told me it's true. You're probably the same person that says, hey, if it's on Facebook, it's a real deal. <laughs> Hello? I'm t I'm, listen, if I'm lying, I'm dying. There are two churches in one city because of this very thing. People assumed things that just weren't true. How many family problems could be avoided if we didn't automatically assume the worst about someone? We assume the reason they didn't talk to us at the family reunion is because they don't like us. We assume the reason they wouldn't let their child play with ours is because they think their kid's better than ours. Am I getting close? How often do teenagers make assumptions about their parents that just aren't right? They assume, look at me, this isn't funny. They assume that their parents don't let them go to certain places or hang out with certain people because they want to control them. They just want to control my life. They just want to dictate my life. They just, they hate me. They don't want me to have any fun. When the truth is, listen to me, young people, the truth is, they just want to protect you. Come on now. Your mom and dad aren't as clueless as you think they are. They do their homework. They call other parents. They look at that person's social media activity. They see what they post. They see the pictures they post. They see the places they brag about where they've gone. And your parents aren't stupid. 
They know things. They learn things. And all they're trying to do is to keep you out of an unhealthy situation or an unholy environment. But this also works in reverse. Now, young people, this is your turn to say amen. Because sometimes mom and dad assume that because their child or their teen is acting in a certain way, it's because they've got a bad attitude. When the truth is, they're wrestling with something in their heart that they're afraid to talk to mom and dad about. You can say amen. Preacher, I'm a teenager, I ain't say amen. It ain't cool. I got it. But is that fair enough? I mean, they just assume things about you that aren't true. And what about husbands and wives? Since I'm in trouble, we might as well just jump in the whole way. If you're visiting from out of town, let's ought to make for some great conversation on the way home. And what about husbands and wives? How many times have we assumed something about our spouse's motives that wasn't even close? And we're left feeling ashamed because we've assumed the worst about the person who loves us the most. These same kind of scenarios often play out in the workplace. A superior hands down some instructions or announces some changes or, or hands down a mandate, and those under him or her automatically assume the worst. Their assumption is they're letting their power go to their head, and, 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 and they start making all kinds of accusations and launching all kinds of attacks, when in reality, listen to me, when in reality, they're just handing down to you what has been handed down to them. It happens. I go on and on and on and on with these kinds of scenarios. Unfounded assumptions lead to untrue accusations, which lead to unwarranted attacks. So, what do we do about it? How do we avoid this sinful practice? Real quick, write these down. These will help you. Number one, follow God's instructions. Talk face to face. We're not going to take time to read this. But God, being the God he is, anticipated this already. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, verses 12 through 16, he describes what to do. If they, and he uses this, this, these words, if they heard say. <laughs> if you hear something about someone that they're going after and serving other gods, here's what he said they were supposed to do. Inquire and make search and ask diligently. 
Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 16. What great instruction. Inquire, make search, ask diligently. How much offense and hurt could be avoided if we just did what the Bible tells us to do rather than assuming omniscience? which, by the way, only belongs to God. But we claim we know what someone's motives are. And so we just do what we do. Husbands and wives, are you listening this morning? Moms and dads, are you listening this morning? Teens, are you listening? Family members, friends, are you, you listening? Employers, employees... Are you listening today, church members? Are you listening today? Pastor, ministry staff, are you listening today? Do not assume. Talk face to face. Inquire. Make search. Ask diligently. And when you do, here's the second thing. Seek to understand. Then seek. To be understood. This principle is actually habit number five of Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of of Highly Effective People. And, And here's what he wrote If I were to summarize in one sentence the single most important principle I have learned in the field of interpersonal relations, it would be this Seek first to understand, then to be understood so many times we've already made up our mind about a situation based on an assumption so we never really seek clarity or understanding in a matter and we just go straight to letting that person know what we think Hey, listen, we could save ourselves a lot of emotional energy and oftentimes embarrassment if we would approach the person with a willingness to understand where they're coming from first. Perhaps a parent could sit down with their teen and say something like this. You've, seen, you've just seemed to be really on edge the last few days. Is there something that I can talk to you about? Is there something we can pray about? Mom and dad, seek to understand before you want them to understand you. Seek to understand them. Maybe a young person could go respectfully to mom and dad and ask them, I don't understand. I don't want to argue. I don't want to fight. I just just don't understand. Could you help me understand why you made that decision. One family member could say to another, you know, you've seemed really, really distant since the last family reunion. Have I, have I done something to offend you? Is, is there anything we can talk about? Is there anything we can pray about? Are you with me? You know what you're doing? You're seeking to understand before being understood. Here's number three. 
Take the concern of others seriously. Two and a half tribes on the east side of Jordan didn't just blow off the concerns of the other nine and a half tribes. They didn't just dismiss them as immature or overly sensitive or easily offended. They didn't just say, listen, you guys just need to get over it. They took their concerns seriously. And he said, you know, you're right. If we're doing something that has given rise to that much concern, and maybe, maybe, we should have, maybe we should have talked to you about that. Maybe we should have said, hey, here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the deal. If we're acting or have acted in a way that has given rise to concern on the part of others, then perhaps we should stop to consider what we're doing rather than just being so dismissive. You with me? Now she's always up in here about something. No, we should stop. Is this a legitimate concern? Am I, am I acting in a way, am I doing something that has given rise to that kind of concern? And then finally, always, 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 in doing all of this, always aim for unity. I'll not read the closing verses just to say this. At the end, this whole thing ended in unity. They said, for it shall be a witness between us and the Lord, or us that the Lord is God. So here's the good end of the story. It ended in unity. Unity prevailed. You know why? Because the nine and a half tribes did what God told them to do. Rather than just charging in with weapons and swords and start hacking away on people, they did what God told them to do. They went face to face. And in the end, Unity prevailed. So one more time. Unfounded assumptions lead to untrue accusations which lead to unwarranted attacks. So here's the invitation today. Who has been on your mind the last 15 minutes. What situation have you been mauling over in your mind since we got out of the reading scripture and got into the practical part of this message? How could you have done things differently? What can you do now to make things better? Listen, it took a lot of character for Phineas and the others to go to their brothers and inquire 
and make search and ask diligently. But in the end, it was the right thing to do. And it's going to take some character. Come on, let's be honest. It doesn't take any character to take pot shots at people behind their back. Does it? Doesn't take any character to do that. But it takes character to go to them face to face. And by the way, that's how Jesus prescribed it in the New Testament as well. Not only does it take character, it takes humility. Takes humility, takes grace. I'm going to ask you again, I'm going to pray. Whose face has been in your mind's eye the last 15 or 20 minutes? A family member? A church member? An employer, a former employer, an employee, a former employee? Who's it been? In what situation have you been mulling over the last little bit? They and that are probably the things that you need to ask God today. God, give me grace. Give me humility to do what I can. Now listen to me. Say, preacher, what if I, what, what if I do that and they don't respond? That's not on you. Come on, that's not on you. You can't make anybody respond to you. Your obligation is to do your part. And God help us to do that.